thank you so much for joining us right here on The Natural Nurse and Dr. Z. And this is your host, Ellen Kamai, The Natural Nurse. Um, sometimes we have Dr. Eugene Samperone on, sometimes on, I'm on, but we always have some very fascinating guests and we will today as well. But first, I'd like to tell you a little bit about all the classes and workshops that we have available. The best place to find them is to go to naturalnurse.com. That's naturalnurse.com. And you can look at calendar of events. We have a lot going on and many events are free. And most of them include CE units. One event that we have coming up right away is called Love Your Liver, Botanical Detoxification Support. And that class, it's online and it offers three CE units. And that's for any professional, many different professionals, such as nurses, registered dietitians, certified nutritionists, licensed acupuncturists, licensed massage therapists. But if you're none of the above, you can just take the Love Your Liver Botanical Detoxification Support class, and you don't need the three CE units, but you will get a certificate of attendance, which is just for your records, as well as all the knowledge about what kinds of herbs you might want to use to upregulate your liver's detoxification pathway, which is so important right now because modern life offers a myriad of challenges to your natural detoxification capacity. So we're going to look at how we can make your liver work better. Of course, also your job is to cut down on, on the input of toxins when you can, but help your body actually naturally get rid of and cleanse out these elements that cause disease. So not only that, but if you are interested at all in perhaps becoming a registered herbalist, this class is usable towards that. So all kinds of reasons just for personal knowledge, for CE credits, or to go ahead and perhaps work towards a higher level of herbalism, such as becoming a registered herbalist. We also have an entire page, um, and I think you can Google this by this name, it's called Natural Nurse Academy. And on the Natural Nurse Academy, I list all the classes that you can take for CE credits. And by the way, all of them are also available anytime for anyone just to learn about it, such as learning about Hildegard of Biggin, the mystic, psychic, visionary herbalist weaving the tapestry of healing from the cosmic elements, or sugar blues, botanicals for glycemic support, or leaky gut syndrome, how to deal with the microbiome, or herbs for the spiritual season, which is really about the magical use of herbs specifically linked to that time of year that we're headed towards. So really, I have many hundreds of classes, but many of them are listed here and they are on demand. So you can take them anytime. So that's something you could look at at Natural Nurse Academy. And we do grant certificates such as the Natural Nurse Herbal Certification course that has 18 CEU credits. 
Also, you can take a look at all our books. Some people like our books as holiday gifts. Um, I've written 16 books and they're all available at naturalnurse.com books, such as Arthritis, The Alternative Medicine Definitive Guide, Weight Loss, The Natural Medicine Chest, Cycles of Life, which is about herbs for women, The Natural Guide to Great Sex. And then we have some very inexpensive eBooks, such as Keys to Virility and Vitality, and a very popular one, which is called Supplements for Pain. And all of them, of course, are, you know, our clinical experience. That's myself and Dr. Eugene Samprone. I have been involved as a natural health provider since 1973. So I think I have, you know, a little bit of experience and really many thousands and thousands of clients that we have worked with and and seen the kind of result that comes about when you institute natural therapeutics into your life, which can involve taking supplements. That's only one part of it. It can't be only taking supplements. We need to look at the holistic picture. What are you putting in your mouth? What are you putting in your mind? What are you doing with your body? All of those things. I saw a great, great show just the other night called Lifestyle Medicine, which we'll talk about as well as I bring on my guest, because we're so happy to have as our guest today, Dr. Mark Ratner. And he completed his undergraduate studies at my alma mater, Cornell University, where he also did graduate work in nutritional biochemistry. He then went to Tulane University School of Medicine and had um, a lot of years of work in adult and pediatric urology with the Tulane hospital system. And then he ran his Washington, D.C.-based practice for 30 years, which focused on male reproductive health. So he has been an investigator for dozens of clinical trials and served as the director of male reproductive medicine for one of the largest IVF practices in the country. Also, of course, he's a very well-known speaker at dozens of national meetings. And, you know, after today's show, when you visit our archives, Dr. Ratner has been good enough to actually offer free Ebooks. One is called Heartburn, Acid Reflux, and GERD, What You Need to Know. And another one is Metformin, What You Need to Know. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Ratna. My pleasure, Ellen. Now, I also want to tell people that currently you run Therologics, which is T-H-E-R-A-L-O-G-I-X. And we do have a link to Therologics.com website. So that's an amazing path that you have been on. Let's go back in time. And why did you want to be a doctor in the first place? Wow. (laughs) Um, Why did I want to be a doctor? It's uh, it's a long time ago. Um, You know, I I guess I always just loved uh, biology. Um, I loved uh, when I was in like you know, junior high school growing up on Long Island. Um, I love dissecting stuff in biology. I just, I just found it fascinating. Um, and um, that was sort of my focus, the life sciences. And then when I was at Cornell, 
Um, and we might have been there kind of roughly around the same time. I was there like um, 60, 69, starting in 69. You started, I started in 72. Okay, so we, yeah. Yeah, we were so there. We, we overlapped. You were, uh, you were there just at the tail end of all of that uh, 60s radical excitement, I guess. Oh, right? yes. It yeah. was fun. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, um, I was pre-med at Cornell, and, um, and uh, it, it just cemented my, my interest. And um, I uh, probably got a little bit too distracted by all of the beautiful surroundings in Ithaca. And... Um, I uh, ended up going to do graduate work after my undergraduate work. I stayed at Cornell. Cornell had a, um, a nutritional biochemistry program, um, which was really top flight. And, uh, you know, I went into it, to be perfectly honest, because I needed to make my kind of application a little stronger for medical school. Um, all those distractions uh, of my undergraduate years uh, kind of made me uh, not uh, a, a prime initial candidate when I applied to medical school. So uh, I, I stuck around. I was uh, in a master's program at Cornell and, and then uh, ended up going to medical school down, as you mentioned, at Tulane. Um, well, wait a minute, because yeah. there's another important part about all this, which led you eventually to therologics and right. really looking at nutrients, because you actually also have a degree Um which was part of that training, I imagine, in terms of nutritional biochemistry. Right, right. And, you know, it was funny because um, I, I, I'd love to say that I was just so, you know, prescient about, you know, how important nutrition was. It was interesting back, you know, this was back in the late 70s uh, when I was in graduate school there. And um, then I got into medical school and I sort of, you know, then residency. And then I left in uh, New Orleans and came up to Washington, D.C. and went into practice. And to be perfectly honest, nutrition sort of fell out of my consciousness. Um, you know, it wasn't really um, a very uh, front and center part of urologic practice. Um, Although it well should be. I'll throw well, that out. No, absolutely. <laughs> and, and really what happened, you know, uh, it's a fascinating story how we started Therologics. In the late 90s, or 1999, right into 2000, there were some really interesting studies getting published about the impact of specific nutrients on prostate cancer risk. Um, and these were really exciting studies. Um, I, not only because I was a urologist, but also because I happened to have um, a, a pretty strong family history of, of uh, prostate cancer uh, that runs in my family. And like breast cancer and uh, colon cancer, you know, prostate cancer is one of those uh, cancers that does have a, uh, a genetic uh, component. And so my attention was really focused on these studies that, that tied together um, the benefit of, of certain nutrients and certain uh, nutritional approaches to reducing prostate cancer risk. Um, but then we kind of looked around at the world of supplements that this is 20 years ago that were was out there and it's it's still you know i mean it's gotten a, a little bit better but to be perfectly frank you know the supplement industry is not um it's it's filled with a lot of uh less than stellar um products and players uh you know in in our industry and so uh, we we created this company really and the initial focus was to try and 
develop a product that was going to focus on this new emerging research about the benefits of of nutritional uh, intervention in terms of reducing prostate cancer risk. And that's kind of how we started Therologics. That's almost 20 years ago. Um, And we've evolved over these 20 years away, not away, but we've expanded, I should say, uh, beyond just um, those initial uh, issues of prostate health and um, into um, reproductive health in a more, in a broader way, uh, along with uh, several other areas of of medical specialization. And we have a a really terrific medical advisory board, which uh, includes department chairman from six different medical schools um, in, in a bunch of different specialties. Um, and so we've, we've, it's been a really fascinating ride for me um, uh, over these past 20 years, uh, because as you pointed out, nutrition is still, um, you know, the, uh, the, as they say, the redheaded stepchild of, of, uh, of medical education. Uh, it, it doesn't get uh, the, the focus and attention that it that it should still, um, but that's sort of how my path kind of took me to uh, Therologics and and where I am today. I'm now the chief science officer at Therologics, um, and uh, I actually uh, stopped seeing patients uh, in my clinical practice about two years ago, and I focused my time uh, entirely uh, on on Therologics at this point. Right. Well, there's not time. To, you know, there's only so many hours in a day. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so that's wonderful because that actually brings those healing components by you focusing on allowing those supplements to be available to even more people than you could do one on one. So I think it's, you know, very good use of your time. And, you know, there was a show I saw the other night. It was on PBS. And it was an amazing show. I'm going to have to track it down because what it was in terms of what is now being called lifestyle medicine, which is being initiated within mainstream medicine in many locations. That's what that special was about. Um, Based a lot on Dr. Dean Ornish's work in cardiology, not only stopping the development of cardiovascular disease, but reversing it which is like, you're not allowed to say cure in medicine. But he proved that it can be done. And this was a regular PBS special showing many of the major centers all over the country who are now uh, doing that, like live well centers, where they're bringing in lifestyle medicine as standard of practice care. So to me, that's very exciting because I think that's where it all should go. Well, Ornish, you know, it's interesting. He, about 20 years ago, um, he ran a study which was a prostate cancer lifestyle study. Um, And he specifically, I mean, he was way ahead of his time on this. And tell us about Um, the study. uh, Well, I mean, prostate cancer is... um, unusual. On this edition of the Natural Medicine Chest, we'll discuss the folklore, history, chemistry, and medicinal applications of the common kitchen herb, thyme. The common culinary spice known botanically as thymus vulgaris is only one member of a large genera, which includes over 400 species and even more varieties. 
The thymus genera is originally native to the Mediterranean region and is a perennial plant which grows wild in usually dry, sandy soil, green heaths, and grasslands. Thyme is a prolific, fragrant, creeping ground cover and often displays an attractive spray of flowering branchlets spanning the spectrum from white to violet. There is considerable debate amongst historians as to the origin of the name thyme. Some believe it to be from the Greek thymen, meaning to fumigate or to burn a sacrifice, because it was used as a sweet-smelling incense and also to keep pests and venomous creatures away from the Greek home. Others believe it came from the Greek thumus, meaning courage or energy, perhaps because it has a reputation of being used by Greek warriors for courage and was bathed in and used as a beverage for invigoration. The Egyptians used an herb called tham, which we believe is thymus vulgaris, to mummify their dead. The principal chemical constituents of thyme are the volatile oils consisting of phenol, thymol, and carvacrol. A 1977 article in the scientific journal Chemical Abstracts revealed that thymol's antimicrobial activity is 18 times more powerful than phenol. Phenol is a major antiseptic used in commercial germicidal cleaners like Lysol. Thymol is one of the most potent antimicrobial substances known and far surpasses even the strongest antibiotics. It has been illustrated in the Journal of Chemistry and in the Merck Index of Drugs and Chemicals to Destroy Parasites, Worms, Fungi, Bacteria, Mosquito Larvae, and Many Viruses. The pharmaceutical and cosmetic industry is privy to the important medicinal effects of oil of thymus vulgaris. It is ubiquitously found in gargles, cough drops, vapor rubs, and many mouthwashes. Oil of thyme is to be used, albeit very sparingly because of its potency, as a gargle or mouthwash for sore throats and inflamed gums. Because the volatile oil is expelled via the lungs and kidneys, naturopathic physicians use it for upper respiratory infections and urinary tract infections. If you're in the midst of a cold and are lying in bed with too much thyme on your hands, try making a thyme tea made with just a few teaspoons of thyme to a cup of boiling water. It's an excellent diaphoretic because it causes the body to perspire profusely. Thyme also possesses an excellent carminative and antispasmodic effect, helping in poor digestion, flatulence, and intestinal gripe. So listeners, if you're feeling ill, thyme heals all wounds. Remember to reach for that thyme in a bottle the next time you open up the natural medicine chest. Thank you so much for joining us today. Sorry about that little interruption, but we are going to continue. And I just want to reintroduce our guest for today. And that is Dr. Mark Ratner, MD, um, highly experienced from Cornell and Tulane. And he is uh, now the, the head science officer at Therologics at Therologics.com. And we'll have a link to that. And you were just sharing with us, Dr. Ratna, about how research was starting to show about how useful nutrition can be and lifestyle can be in various illnesses. And I believe we left off um, talking about studies that came out um, that linked healthy lifestyles to prostate wellness. Sure. I mean, uh, Dr. Ornish, Dean Ornish, is probably best known for 
uh, his heart studies and and uh, the po- the program uh, that he probably had um, the the biggest uh, uh, success with was uh, reversing heart disease. Um, although he's now more expanded into you know, uh, metabolic syndrome and, and type two diabetes. And so lifestyle medicine, um, has really broadened, um, the things that it, it tries to, uh, to tackle. Um, but 20 years ago, um, he actually had a, a study that he ran for men who had low grade, low stage prostate cancer. And I, I was about to say, um, uh, before that, Prostate cancer is unusual in that we say many more men will die with it than die of it. Um, And the reason for that is because prostate cancer in most, actually most men, uh, if you live long enough, you're going to have a little tiny bit of prostate cancer. Um, And if you live to be 90, the chances of there being some cancer in your prostate gland is about 90%. Um, and so what we learned, uh, and Ornish was really out very early uh, in, in this understanding, is that the concept of what we used to call watchful waiting, but now is called active surveillance, um, is very useful for many men who are diagnosed with prostate cancer. Um, in other words, you don't do surgery, you don't do radiation, um, because this is has been figured to be, in other words, in this particular patient's case, we've discovered that this is a very slow-growing very a variety of prostate cancer. And, and there are some prostate cancers that are very fast-growing and, and others that are very slow-growing. And so if you can determine that a patient has a very slow-growing variety of prostate cancer, it may be perfectly safe to just do what we now call active surveillance uh, and incorporating diet and lifestyle changes for those men um, is uh, a key part of a good active surveillance plan. Um, so I want to bring, I just want to bring, oh no, go ahead and finish your thought there. No, I, all I was going to say is that Ornish actually did the first study of this 20 years ago, um, where he uh, took men uh, who were diagnosed with this uh, type of low-grade, low-stage, slow-growing prostate cancer um, and randomized them to either sort of standard of care um, uh, of just keeping track of their PSA blood test and rechecking that every four months. And and they would go about their business as they previously had or going into his sort of very aggressive um, uh, lifestyle program uh, and it, it did show that men in his program uh, had had slower rises in their PSA. Um, and so he was very out, out very early in terms of uh, the impact of lifestyle medicine, not only in heart disease and diabetes, the things that we now almost take for granted um, should respond in a very positive way, uh, but something like prostate cancer as well. That's so interesting because, of course, I've been in the field of natural medicine so long. So when my dad was diagnosed by a urologist with having some prostate cancer, and he was already 89 at that point, um, I specifically took him to see Dr. Aaron Katz, 
who you might sure. be familiar with. Oh, because yeah. he, he had been on my radio show, but also for those of you um, in the Long Island area, he actually is at Winthrop Holi- uh, Hospital at Winthrop Urology. So he's at a mainstream hospital, and yet he has initiated exactly what Dr. Mark Ratner said. And I knew that. That's why I brought my father there, because it you do want a physician's evaluation. But then in terms of where do we go from there, he was exactly where you're discussing, Dr. Ratner, which was watch and wait. And so my dad lived to 94. Who knows if he still had it or not? Who cared? It didn't interfere with his life. And, And he outlived the cancer. So I think that should be really the standard of practice. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, um, you know, there's a, uh, the old uh, adage that when your uh, favorite tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, and so urologists um, historically have been trained uh, as surgeons. Uh, and so the concept of active surveillance uh, was very slow to gain acceptance. Um, but at this point, it's, you know, it's it's a standard part. I mean, any put it this way. I don't know how long ago um, your dad was diagnosed when he, you know, when he was 89, but um, at this point, um, I can't imagine there are many urologists out there who would suggest any type of aggressive active treatment for an 89-year-old diagnosed with, uh, with prostate cancer. Knowing that um, it's the slow-growing type, which you, if can, it's the slow-growing which type, you exactly. can determine through medical exactly. tests. Now, let's talk about nutrients. Since you sure. have evolved to be a real specialist in nutrients, how would you deal with that? Or what would you say people should look into or discuss with their doctor if they are diagnosed? Let's say, just to keep the prostate healthy, let's not even say to treat a disease. Sure. So... Um, you know, one of the things that is very fortunate is that the science that has uh, evolved and been published in the in the medical literature basically shows that the same things from a nutritional perspective, the same things that are heart healthy are prostate healthy. Um, and which is what, what you want. I mean, obviously, if you had to pick, you know, if if nutrient X was great for your heart, but terrible for your prostate, that'd be an awful situation. Yeah, but wait a minute. Isn't that usually the case with pharmaceutical drugs? It will have that one action, measurable action, and yet it will interfere with the health and well-being of many other systems. Well, that absolutely. That's, you know, that's why uh, when we were talking before, I, you know, <laughs> uh, you mentioned the eBooks that that we have for download, and and uh, one of them, the one about GERD and, and reflux, is actually called the Prisoner of Prilosec because I experienced exactly what you just said: uh, the, the bad nutrient side effects from prescription medications. But but the point, you, you just get back to what you asked about uh, which nutrients are are sort of prostate healthy. Um, we know that um, we've we've I think there's been a, a even amongst uh, mainstream docs at this point, they understand the concept of good fats and bad fats. Um, you know, saturated and trans fats are not good um, in many different ways. You want to keep those to a minimum uh, mono and polyunsaturated fats, things like olive oil um, uh, are uh, are very healthy. And and uh, the. Um, uh, omega-3 fatty acids that you get from fish oil 
um, are extremely healthy for the prostate. Uh, there's many studies that show great benefit in terms of uh, omega-6 to omega-3 ratios uh, and their, the impact on prostate health. Very interesting. The, high, the country with the very highest rate of um, uh, prostate cancer is actually Jamaica, the island of Jamaica. And for years, they wondered why that was. And it turns out, uh, it appears that the, uh, the lifestyle and dietary issue that inadvertently contributes to that is the very high consumption of something called ackee fruit, A-C-K-E-E. It's a fruit that is uh, it's grown in the Caribbean, and it's, it's a staple in Jamaica. But ackee fruit is extremely high in omega-6 fatty acids. And so Jamaican men have one of the highest ratios of omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acids that's ever been found. And it's believed that that is part of the reason why they have such a high risk of prostate cancer. You want to have more omega-3s in your diet than omega-6s. Um, so that is one thing that's very important for prostate health. Um, we know that um, having a normal selenium level. Uh, you don't want to be too high, but you don't want to be too low. So you want to have adequate selenium intake. Um, things like soy, isoflavones, um, have been very clearly shown uh, to be uh, protective in prostate cancer risk. You know, the, the initial data on prostate cancer uh, and diet and lifestyle stuff came out of what we call epidemiologic studies, where you study populations uh, and look at the trends within those populations in terms of uh, illnesses that, that illnesses that, that develop and then what might be underlying that. And so it's been known for many, many years that men in Asia uh, who are living in Asia, living in uh, China or Japan or Korea, um, have a very much lower rate of prostate cancer than men who live, let's say, in the United States, uh, in Western countries. And Yet, if a family, uh, let's say, moves from China to California um, and they, they moved years ago in two generations, that family that's now been in the United States for two generations, their prostate cancer risk, the men in that family, two generations after they've moved here, their prostate cancer risk is essentially very close to what it is for the rest of the men in the United States. So what changed between those two generations, between the time when they, they were living in Asia and when they were living in the United States. It wasn't their genetics, it was their diet and their lifestyle. And so what kind of things are protective? Uh, that's where we first started getting those clues. So uh, things like soy, much higher intake of soy in Asian countries, uh, things like green leafy vegetables, uh, much lower intake of meat and saturated fat um, in Asian countries. Um, and so these were the first clues that we had that diet and lifestyle could make a big difference. Um, and so uh, those are things, things like lycopene. Lycopene is, uh, it's a, um, what we call a, a carotenoid or carotenoid. It's, a, it's in the same family as vitamin A. Uh, it's a red plant pigment. And it is what makes tomatoes red. It's what makes watermelons red and raspberries. It's basically the most common red plant pigment. But lycopene has been shown in many, many studies to be protective of the prostate. Well, let me um, ask you one thing about that. In my investigations, I have seen 
interestingly enough, that in terms of getting it from a food source, you actually get more from a cooked tomato product than a raw tomato product, which I found was interesting. As far as lycopene goes, that's absolutely correct. Yes. And I mean, there's, and it's probably because the lycopene is intracellular and when you cook it, you release it. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I think a lot of people have always been under the impression that raw vegetables and raw fruits are somehow more nutrient packed than cooked. Well, well, there's a huge movement of, you know, just all raw, which I'm not a big fan of. And this is right. one of the reasons because right, science right. does not actually support that. Yeah. And so, yes. And, and uh, this is also one of the things that is a challenge, I think, in the supplement industry, um, because you know, when you eat a tomato, and, and again, the data on lycopene, the first data to suggest a protective effect from lycopene and prostate cancer came out of Harvard. Um, and it was an epidemiologic study where they did food diaries. And it turned out that men who had the highest intake of tomato products uh, had some of the lowest risk of prostate cancer. And they then focused in on um, on lycopene as the probably the key nutrient. But the point is that when you have cooked tomatoes, when you eat a whole tomato, you know, um, you're not only getting lycopene, you're getting phytofluene, you're getting all these other micro, you know, these phytonutrients that are there as well as the lycopene. And uh, what is the the synergy that's happening between them? We don't really understand it, but um, but to think that you're going to get that benefit by just taking pure lycopene alone is probably a mistake. Um, and so in the supplement industry, that's one of the challenges. And so, for instance, we created our prostate supplement, the very first product that we created 20 years ago. Um we did not use pure lycopene. We used a whole tomato extract. Um, uh, and it's a fascinating because, product. Yeah, yeah we'll, ju we'll just share with our listeners because if you use just the lycopene, that was extracted and then an isolate. Well, right. if you used a full tomato extract, you're getting the benefit of the wide range, some of which may not be known what they do, but we know that, you know, God put it there. Anyway, it's the whole fruit. Yes, no, absolutely. So you're getting lutein and, and phytofluene and, and all these other nutrients that are naturally found in a tomato. But then we would use an extract that was standardized for its lycopene content. So we knew how much lycopene we were delivering, but we were also delivering in our product um, uh, additional nutrients that were normally going to be found in a, in a tomato. Do the same. We do the same thing with soy in that product. You can... Uh, I, soy isoflavones, you can get pure uh, genistein or deadzine. Those are the two primary um, uh, isoflavones that are found in soybeans. Uh, but instead, we use a whole soybean extract, uh, which is called Nova Soy. And so, yes, it's standardized for the amount of genistein and deadzine, but it's got the whole spectrum of, uh, of other nutrients that you get in an in a isoflavone extract from soy. Um, so that's that's one of the challenges that that I think the supplement world faces, and that is, um, you know, you can't you can't necessarily use an isolate, um, and and to to really take a left hand turn here and and um, uh, bring another example of that in is the whole uh, you know cannabinoid um, world, 
for people who are using. Um, so wait, wait, before you get into that, Dr. Yeah. Ratner, before we discuss cannabinoids, because that's a whole show in and of itself, let me just remind our listeners that that is linked to hemp and uh, the hemp plant or used to be called marijuana. That's a bad word now for some reason. But anyway, that particular kind of discussion there with the cannabinoids. Right. So you can, you know, you can, there's a, there's a drug, which is called Marinol, which is a pure THC. It's a pharmaceutical version of THC and it's approved by the FDA for chemotherapy associated nausea. Okay. Uh, But it's just THC. On the other hand, if you use cannabis, you're getting THC and CBD and CBG, and and there's like 80 different cannabinoids and about 100 different terpenes, and it's that entourage effect, that blended effect that that seems to have um, um, a much different impact than pure isolates do. Um, and so that's that's again one of the challenges that we face, and that is the pharmaceutical industry. Obviously, they want to focus in on on specific compounds on the on the molecule that they can patent and then produce in a very um, uh, standardized way, uh, whereas nature kind of uh, hands us a blend. Uh, and that's, I, I, you know, honestly, that can be a, a, both a blessing and a curse because, you know, you're challenged to try and figure out how is this blend working? What is that effect of, of the, the combination of these different you know, nutrients. Um, and, you know, there are instances where it turned out that there was one specific compound that, like, for instance, foxglove, you know, uh, and digitalis or, or willow bark and aspirin. Um, you know, I mean, these, these, there are many, many drugs that originally were extracted from from plant sources. Well, almost all of them. All you have to do is look at the older Merck manual or the national formulary, um, or the U.S. pharmacopoeia. It was all, all pharmaceuticals, not long ago. If you look at the Lilly books and the Merck books, they were all plant, direct plant extracts, which then once they're able to synthesize and in particular patent, then it moves away from the herbal format. Sure, 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 yeah. Yeah, so so we evolved, uh, you know, from starting out, we started out with prostate supplements and we moved into prenatal vitamins. We work with a lot of fertility companies around the uh, fertility practices around the country uh, with uh, fertility supplements and fertility prenatals. Um, we have a superb product for PCOS, um, and which is a uh, inositol. It's a natural inositol product uh, called Ovacetol, which uh, is an insulin sensitizer and has been shown in uh, clinical trials to be every bit as good as metformin uh, in terms of uh, restoring insulin sensitivity for, for women with PCOS. Um, what is, what's the main, what are the main ingredients in, in that blood, ba- uh, blood sugar balance? Um, so ovacetol is a blend of two different inositols. One is called myo inositol, and the other one is dechiro inositols. Inositols are sugar alcohols, um, and sugar alcohols are this family of them: uh, xylitol, mannitol, sorbitol. Um, these are sugar alcohols, and so you know they're they're found in nature. They're in plants, and um, 
We actually, the typical Western diet gets about a thousand milligrams of inositol per day, um, primarily from fruits and vegetables. Um, but it's been very clearly shown that uh, myo and decairo inositol, they serve as what's called the second messengers for the insulin receptor. And so women who have PCOS, about 80% of them have what's called insulin resistance, where the it, the, the production of insulin by the pancreas is perfectly normal, but the cells in the body don't respond appropriately to the presence of insulin. And if we increase the amount of inositol, which are the second messengers for the insulin receptor on the outside of those cells, if we can increase the concentration of inositols, uh, we restore the response to insulin. Well, that's uh, so, fascinating. So I just yeah. want to say, we're talking here today with Dr. Mark Ratner, fascinating discussion on evidence-based nutrients and about um, where you can find him at therologics.com. And we have a live link to that. We're going to take a little break right here, Dr. Ratna. And when we come back, um, let's go into some of the topics that people can download a free book about, such sure. as one that I know you experienced personally, yeah. heartburn, acid reflux, and GERD, what you need to know. So we will be right back with more right here on The Natural Nurse and Dr. Z. And welcome back to more right here on The Natural Nurse and Dr. Z. Thank you so much for joining us. We love to hear from you. Go to naturalnurse.com and you can contact us. You can also go to Calendar and find out about all the up-and-coming lectures and workshops. And of course, we do lots of private consultations, particularly busy right now with people in particular nurses, but others who want to move their profession um, away from, let's say, conventional settings and move more into a holistic, natural, professional lifestyle. So that's something that we're really busy with, and many people are becoming extremely successful at making that transition. So we have a class called Career Paths in Natural Health. So if you're interested in any of those things, just get in touch. Today, we're so happy to have on board as our guest, very knowledgeable and interesting Dr. Mark Ratner, who has a very long bio, which will be posted on the archive. But suffice it to say that you can find out more about him and his work at Therologics, that's T-H-E-R-A-L-O-G-I-X.com, and we'll have a live link on the archive. But now, Dr. Ratna, let's talk about, you know, your personal experience as a patient, not as a doctor, about a medication-induced nutrient depletion that landed you in an emergency room. Yeah, this happened uh, a number of years back, about five or six years ago, and and going back before then, um, what happened to set that whole incident up was I had for many, many years had um, chronic heartburn. Um, and, you know, uh, doctors call, if you have heartburn kind of on a daily basis, doctors will call it GERD, G-E-R-D for gastroesophageal reflux disease. Um, and, you know, it's an annoyance. It's uh, obviously very uncomfortable. You have to, sometimes you can't eat certain foods, but it can have even more serious ramifications because a small percentage, somewhere in like the 
two to three percent of uh, of individuals with GERD can actually develop esophageal cancer from having the acid that's normally supposed to stay in their stomach re chronically reflux back up into their esophagus or food tube. Um, and so the first step is what's called Barrett's esophagus, which is a condition that a gastroenterologist would be able to diagnose by looking in there with a tube. Um, but then if you do have Barrett's esophagus um, from having reflux like that, chronically, uh, you're really at a higher risk of getting uh, esophageal cancer. So it's got some potentially serious ramifications. Anyway, so, oh, probably 20 years ago, um, a friend of mine who was an internist, uh, I was complaining about my heartburn, and he gave me some samples of Prilosec. Um, and it was like miraculous. Uh, you know, it, it basically what, what, what Prilosec and other drugs in that same category do is they stop your stomach from producing acid. Um, and other drugs like Nexium, Prevacid, uh, and Prilosec, they're, they're what we call PPIs, which stands for proton pump inhibitors. Uh, that's kind of the mechanism of action, how they stop the acid from being produced in the stomach. Uh, but they're miraculous drugs. I mean, if, if you have uh, chronic heartburn and you, you stop your stomach from making uh, acid, your stomach is still going to reflux. You're going to still get that reflux up into the food tube. But because there's no acidity, you don't feel it. So your symptoms go completely away. Um, anyway, to make a long story short, about five years ago, I woke up in the middle of the night. I had uh, irregular heartbeat. I ended up in the emergency room. And it turned out that the reason I had developed this irregular heartbeat was my magnesium level was very low. And the reason it turned out, and this was sort of an embarrassing thing for me, the reason my magnesium level was high was because I had been taking Prilosec for like 15 years every day. And I didn't realize that when you do that, when you stop your stomach from producing acid like that chronically, you stop absorbing magnesium from your diet. You also stop absorbing, absorbing vitamin B12. And so individuals who are chronically taking um, a PPI like Prilosec or Nexium. And these days those are sold over the counter and they're typically sold by their generic name. So Prilosec is the trade name that originally was sold as a prescription medication. Uh, today it's usually called Omeprazole or sometimes they'll call it Prilosec OTC over the counter. Um, but you can get it without a prescription. Um, and the problem is that, you know, okay, so I've, I'm in the hospital. I'm in the emergency room. They, they, they give me some medication through my intravenous. My heart, my heart rhythm goes back to normal. Um, and I realized, okay, I gotta, I gotta get off of this Prilosec um, because you know, look where, look what happened. Um, but what I discovered was once you're on a medication like that and have been taking it chronically, it's it, almost impossible to get off it uh, because you get what's called a rebound acidity which lasts for weeks if you try to stop it. If you stop Prilosec after having taken it for, for months, um, and it's the same thing with Nexium or Prevacid or any of these other ones, um, you go through a period of weeks where you feel like you want to die. I mean, it's just, you get terrible chest and stomach burn, you know, uh, pains and diarrhea, and uh, it's, it's, just, it's just misery. Um, so I ended up going back on the Prilosec. Um, and that's why, and I've tried several times to get off it. If you go on the internet and you search getting off of Prilosec, you'll find plenty of people blogging about 
you know, their suggestions for techniques of getting off of it. Um, I've been unsuccessful. So that's why my ebook, the ebook I wrote is called Prisoner of Prilosec. Um, and instead, now what I do is I supplement um, both magnesium and vitamin B12. And what we did at Theralogics is we set out to create a supplement with high absorption forms of both B12 and magnesium so that if you took it, it would overcome the reduced absorption being ca- caused by the PPI. So this is a product that's called Remplier. Wait, 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 wait. We're not going to yeah. talk about products here because okay. this is an NPR social. Oh, sorry. We, okay. We, but we certainly can talk, however. And I just want to remind our listeners that you are listening to The Natural Nurse and Dr. Z right here on Progressive Radio Network. And we're talking to Dr. Mark Ratner. And what we can talk about there, Dr. Ratner, is in general, what would be better absorbed forms of magnesium versus ones that were not as well absorbed. And we can do the same with vitamin B12. Sure. Okay. So magnesium um, is a mineral. And when you produce it as a supplement, it has to be attached to um, uh, another molecule. So probably one of the most common forms of magnesium that's out there as a supplement, it's very inexpensive, is magnesium oxide. Okay, in which case the magnesium is bound to an oxygen molecule. But that is a non-organic um, or inorganic uh, form of magnesium. Um, there's magnesium citrate. There's magnesium uh, gly- glycinate. And so, what what forms of the forms of magnesium that are best absorbed? It turns out are those that are called chelated magnesium, which means they are bound to an amino acid. Uh, which is an organic molecule. Um, With magnesium supplementation, you have to strike the best balance between absorption and tolerability because there are certain forms of magnesium which can be very irritating to the stomach. Uh, And so the the best balance is generally going to be achieved with uh, a chelated form of magnesium, such as magnesium glycinate. Um, And uh, there's probably, I would say, at least seven or eight different forms of magnesium that you can find in various dietary supplements. But the devil's in the details. And uh, and so choosing the right one um, is going to both be important from the absorption perspective, uh, which unfortunately you won't really know if you're absorbing or not. but then the other aspect is the tolerability. And certainly if, if you're taking a form of magnesium, which is irritating to the stomach, that you're going to know. <laughs> You'll, yeah, I mean. Right, but I'm, I really recommend, and I think it should be part of standard of practice, just like we were talking earlier in terms of lifestyle medicine should be, because it is evidence-based, uh, should be standard of practice across the United States all the time in every situation, which doesn't mean you get rid of pharmaceuticals and surgery. They're used appropriately if those other things don't work, which cost much less and are much safer. But when we're talking about something like magnesium, um, don't you think it would be wise if we also instituted testing of all nutrients every year or two that's not that expensive so people would know where they're at versus not doing um, it at all uh, 
I mean, all nutrients, I think, would would probably be challenging. But I can tell you that every time I go in for a checkup, uh, we include a magnesium level for me, okay, to make sure that my magnesium level doesn't drop too low again. I don't want to end up right. With a, but with a, magnesium, right, that would be good for a, for sort of on baseline, and then they could do a red blood cell magnesium, which is a more expensive test to see if it's actually being absorbed. Exactly, it is measurable, and right. I and really B12, think it B12 should be as done. Well. Mm-hmm. Vitamin B12 as well. Yeah. I mean, because uh, the PPIs um, are probably even more likely to cause a B12 deficiency than magnesium deficiency. And is there a um, special form of B12 that people should look for? They can read their labels and see if that's the kind they're getting. So this is uh, it's an interesting uh, question because that's a, it's an area of a little bit of controversy. Um the um, there's two basic forms of B12 that are used in supplements, and there's two camps. There's a, you know there's a camp for in support of each form, and they each have their arguments. and And one of them is called methylcobalamin. Uh, cobalamin, C O B A L M I N, cobalamin. I think I've spelled that correctly. Is the scientific name for vitamin B12. So. Uh, once again, it's it's either bound to a methyl group, in which case you would call it methylcobalamin, or it can be another form is called cyanocobalamin, where it's actually bound to cyanide. And people, oh my gosh, cyanide, that's poison. You know, how could you possibly use a form of vitamin B12 that's got cyanide in it? But um, it's actually the amount of vitamin B12 that we need on a daily basis, the recommended daily intake is like three or four micrograms per day. I mean, you're talking tiny amounts. And in fact, all of the studies that have ever been done with vitamin B12 have typically in the past used cyanocobalamin. It's yes, by far the most, it's the most common form of vitamin B12 that's used in supplements. So it, we know it's safe. The, sci- the tiny, tiny bit amount of cyanide is really, um, is not an issue. Um, but there are camps on both sides. And so what, what, um, you know what a lot of companies are are now doing and then creating supplements is they'll they'll use a blend they'll kind of split the difference and um and use uh some of each form that's um, true the methyl and the, and the uh, so exactly. we're coming to the end of our time together it went really quickly you are phenomenally knowledgeable and we really thank you here on natural alternatives what just Throw out the best place for people to find out more. Sure. You know, let me, I should mention also, and this gets back to something you just said a moment ago. Um, you know, if you've got heartburn, if you've got chronic uh, reflux, um, don't run immediately to a PPI. Uh, there are diet and lifestyle management techniques that are uh, potentially going to be effective. Uh, the ebook that uh, I mentioned, Prisoner of Prilosec, uh, all about uh, what you need to know about heartburn, acid reflux, and GERD. You, you know, your listeners can get that if they go to uh, ppihelp.org, O-R-G. So that has, and the book is not only uh, kind of a bit about my own story, but also it talks about those kinds of diet and lifestyle techniques that can minimize acid reflux and GERD so that maybe you don't need to go on a PPI. Um, and also it talks about those steps that you should be taking if you are sort of stuck on a PPI. Um, oh, that's so great. And I do have the link so people can find the, that ebook and another one also about metformin and, and blood sugar balance. So 
Thank you for sharing all that information with our audience today and with us, Dr. My pleasure. my pleasure, Ellen. Uh, great talking to you. And thank you, listeners, for joining us once again for another edition of The Natural Nurse and Dr. Z. You can always find us at naturalnurse.com or drznaturally.com. And until next time, this is your host, Ellen Kamai, on behalf, behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Eugene Samperone, we're hoping that you stay healthy. <laughs>